Well, as we start off a new series today, I'm going to give you a little quiz, all right? So you can rest. It's not about the Gospel of John, all right? So it's not a test to see how much you remember from all the weeks we spent there. But I want to ask you uh, some questions, okay? You can just hold up one for A, two for B, three for C, four for D. So which is the best flavor of ice cream? All right, A, B, C, or D, all right? Hold Come on, you got to, got to weigh in. What's the best flavor of ice cream? A, I see nobody participating, all right? Put your hand up in the air, all right? Put both of them up. Wave them like this, all right? Now, uh, put, a, put a finger up. One, two, three, or four. Is it A? Show the screen there. Uh, yeah, there we go. A for chocolate. My bad. I thought they were right there with me. A for chocolate. B for vanilla. Two for vanilla. Three for strawberry. Or four for butter pecan, all right? So everybody got a finger up, all right? So strangely, I'm looking around the room, and I see a lot of different numbers. That's weird, all right? Let's try another one, all right? See if we can get in sync here together, all right? Which is the best tasting drink? Is it water, coffee, Coke, or we'll say sweet tea, all right? Water, coffee, Coke, or sweet tea out of those choices, all right? So again, I see a lot of different things here. I see a lot of fours. I see some threes, some ones, a couple ones, yeah, all right, twos. All right, all right, here we go. One more. Let's see if this pattern continues, right? Which one of these actions is morally wrong? Eating meat, lying, sleeping past noon, or painting your bedroom black, all right? Which one is morally wrong, all right? Wow, everybody's holding up two, right? Everybody's peace, man. Yeah, like everybody's holding up the two fingers, right? Yeah, all right. So why are we in consensus on this, on number three, right? Strangely enough, in the world that we live in, honestly, we know that most people, if you follow the logic, they will say questions one, two, and three are no different from one another. They're all the same. It doesn't really matter, you know, what truth is a matter of your opinion, right? And that's why we've called this series Truth in a Confused Culture, because at the norm, the problem isn't so much that people are doing lots of bad things, because people have been doing a lot of bad things for many, many centuries, right? But we live in a culture that is more and more is rejecting any kind of moral authority whatsoever, and believe that there's no such thing as objective morality, meaning that, you know, lying might be wrong, it might not be wrong, all right? And so everybody wants to determine their own path for what's right and what's wrong. In fact, if anyone tries to tell another person that they're wrong or right on something, or something is good and evil, more and more you hear people say, you're oppressing me, or, you know, that's hateful toward me, right? That's the kind of world that we live in today. And so, the deception at the root of our confused culture is this idea of what is truth, how do I know truth, all right? So as Bible-believing Christians, I can stand here today and say confidently that we have truth to give to a confused culture, all right? So hang with me for a second, especially if you're a skeptic or a seeker in the room, you kind of landed here, you don't know much about grace. I can confidently say that God's Word reveals to us what is absolutely right and absolutely wrong, and how that we should live based upon those truths, all right? And so as we jump into this little one-chapter book of, Ju- uh, of Jude, today we're going to see how that God has given us truth, and as Christians, it's our job to expose 
the lies in the culture. So let's take a kind of a 30,000 feet look at Jude just for a second and get the bigger themes of it, and then we'll dive in, all right? Jude is writing to expose false teachers. False teachers who are trying to slip into the church and lead the Christian community astray. So exposing false teachers within the midst. Now, I know sometimes when we say false teachers, we think of a guy standing up here teaching, but false teachers can present themselves in your small group, around a circle, uh, in chit-chat after service. False teachers can slip into a community and begin to spread lies, all right? So the non-believing world has always rejected God's word as truth at, at, at a level, right? And so the greatest threat is as we confront this truth is to know, and, or, or the lies, is to know the lie and expose it with the truth and be aware that our job as Christians is to be alert to the lies that come in to our midst, to our community. And then the second thing that Jude wants to accomplish in this little book is he wants to encourage Christians to stand firm in the faith and fight for the truth. To stand firm in the truth and to fight for the faith. And so this message is every bit as important and urgent today as it was at the time of Jude. So let's look at Jude chapter 1, which is only one chapter, verses 1 through 4 today. We're going to actually only get through verse 1 through 2, but let's go ahead and read for context 1 through 4. Jude writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So let's pray and we'll look at this passage. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for truth and we thank you that your word gives us truth that we can know how to navigate and live this world and find the joy and the fulfillment that you desire for us because we base it upon you, God, the creator and the sustainer of life. And God, I pray for those in here today who... Um, are struggling with faith, struggling with doubt, struggling with uncertainty regarding just their, their place in this world. God, I pray that today will bring clarity, clarity and understanding, and God, most importantly, will be a day of their salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may have heard the name Joshua Harris before. Joshua Harris, I've mentioned him sometime in the past. He was a pastor of a very large church, a very influential church, and Joshua Harris in theology and in practice, he was very, very similar to us. In fact, you may have heard of the Gospel Coalition. You may have heard Together for the Gospel. I mean, this guy spoke at these events. All right, this is, so this isn't somebody on the fringe. This is a guy who's part of mainstream evangelical Christianity. And in 2015, he abruptly, for us, looking in from the outside, he abruptly resigned his church. In 2019, he and his wife divorced. And then not so long after that, he renounced his Christian faith. And I watched a recent video uh, interview of him discussing with two other people, two other former Christians, their walk away from Christianity, their walk away from faith. 
And I thought it was interesting what he said and what the other person said. I'm going to just read you these quotes. They're not, they're, they are not on the screen. It says, We are all just doing our best in a flawed way to find meaning, purpose, and community. And Christians are just one group of people who have tried that and in the process caused a lot of hurt and done a lot of harm. And then the other, the young lady that was on the panel, Tara Tang, she's a young influencer, daughter of a pastor who claimed to be once a Christian, now she's not. She said this, are you looking for an authority to tell you what is true and what's not? Those who have grown up in the church have been socialized that way. We had somebody over us in the church telling us what is right. Focus on cultivating that inner knowing within your body. Listen to that quiet, deep inner knowing. That is what's true. Follow that feeling. And so in these two examples, Joshua Harris says that basically Christianity is one group seeking truth. And Tara Tang says, just believe in yourself and truth is inside you. You just discover it. And so just go and find it. So how can I stand here today and be confident that we have truth? Why do I stand here and say God's word is true, we can believe truth? Well, I think one of the greatest ways that we can recognize that, and there are many, today I want to focus in right at the beginning of the book of Jude on one very critical, important one. It's found in verse 1. You may not even recognize it when you read it. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. All right, so let's thank those who know your Bible. Think about it for a second. James identified himself as the brother of Jesus. James was the half-brother of Jesus, and Jude is the brother of James. And James was this prominent leader in the church of Jerusalem, and James was the half-brother, as I said, of Jesus. So Jude is Jesus's brother, all right? What an amazing truth that we're writing, getting a book from someone who is the half-brother of Jesus. But Jude and James both at one point in their lives did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. In fact, Matthew 13, 55 records that uh, James and, and Jude speculate on Jesus, talk about Jesus, and they, and, and, or I'm sorry, in this verse it identifies that James and Judas are the brothers of Jesus. And it says, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And so Judas is interchangeable in the Greek for Jude, Judah. In fact, most English versions translate Judas, the name Jude officially is, into Jude. Why so? The same reason that nobody in here has named their kid Judas. Nobody, you don't, does anybody know anybody named Judas, right? Because of Judas Iscariot. So English translations have said, hey, let's call him Jude, all right? Let's don't call him Judas. The same guy. He's the half-brother of Jesus. And so Jude was there with Jesus when nobody else was there, right? So think about your siblings. Think about them living in your house and what they see. So before the Pharisees were there, before Jesus was in his ministry, Jude was there. Jude was in his life. Jude saw Jesus learn. Jude saw Jesus grow. He saw him resist temptation. He saw him keep God's law perfectly, right? Jude saw this, all right? So can you imagine being compared to your younger brother, Jesus, right? That'd be a really difficult thing. It takes sibling comparison to a whole different level. So Jude, I mean, maybe he's like, you know, Mary was like, Jude, why can't you memorize scripture like Jesus, right? And he's like, 
I just can't do it. And then later on he finds out, hey, that's why, right? Jesus wrote this stuff. And so he was at a major disadvantage as a sibling of Jesus, right? But he saw Jesus. He constantly watched Jesus. James watched Jesus. And so, as I said, Jude and James both and the brothers of Jesus rejected Jesus as the Messiah at at first. We saw that in John chapter 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. And so Jude here grew up with Jesus, rejected Jesus. So what was the moment where Jude decided, hey, there's something unique and special about this guy that's believable? Because you can understand, even though you see your sibling living this life, right, you you still, to believe in them as the Messiah is a stretch. What What happened? After the resurrection of Jesus, Judas believed. Jude believed. Jude and James put their faith in Jesus after the resurrection. That's a major proof for Christianity and a major truth claim. Because the Apostle Paul says it in a way that says it so great, if, if, you're, if Jesus isn't re- raised from the dead, our preaching and our doctrine, our, our, everything is worthless, right? It's pointless because Jesus wasn't who he said he was. But Jude and James saw Jesus. And if Jesus was a fraud... His family, right, would have been the very first to know, right? First to know. Jesus' own family turned around and they worshipped him as a deity after the resurrection. So if the resurrection of a dead man doesn't give claims to credibility to our truth claims, then nothing else will. And so we get a very special account from Jesus' half-brother, one who was a skeptic, who then saw the resurrected Jesus and gave his life to Jesus as not only his Messiah, but creator God of the universe, all right? Jesus is God, deity. And so when he begins to write this, I love his humility. Instead of calling himself the brother of Jesus, which that would be what we would do, we would name drop, right? I'm Jude, and I'm the brother of Jesus, right? Listen to me, I'm important. But he doesn't do that. He calls himself a servant or a slave of Jesus, all right? So in the New Testament, Servant points to a relationship of absolute dependence in which the master and the servant stand polar opposite of one another. The master having full claim, the servant having full commitment. So Jude says, I'm a servant, I'm a slave of my half-brother Jesus, right? So whatever Jesus says for me to do as his servant, I do that. Whatever Jesus says for me to say, As his servant, as a slave, I say that. Wherever Jesus tells me to go, as his servant, as a slave, that's where I go. Because I'm a servant of Jesus. What an amazing truth. And what amazing credibility that gives us that we can be confident as we hold out truth to this world that we can say, look, our faith isn't based upon wishful thinking. It's not based on just like, I I hope this is going to be okay in the end, but it's based on a resurrected Messiah who had a half-brother, half-brothers, who after his resurrection said, something's different about this guy, obviously, right? I believe, we believe. And not only do they believe, but their lives are turned upside down and they give their life for Jesus and they follow Jesus, they're his servant. And then the next thing Jude says, he says, to those who are called, Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus. We're not exactly sure who the recipients of this book are, where they're located, 
But regardless of their location, like all believers, Jude says that they're called, that they're called. In Christian circles, we throw around the word called in a lot of different ways. I don't know if Buzz is here today, but I would say Buzz says, I'm called to Liberia, Africa, right? I'm, I'm called there to go and to be president of African Bible College. So he says, I'm called. In 2013, Grace Church called me to be pastor of this church. There's usually a gospel call directly, if not indirectly, at every message saying, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's a general gospel call. But these callings are not the same as what Jude is using here in this verse as he says the word call. What is he talking about? Let me illustrate, and then we'll talk about it for a second because it can be one of those issues that get people worked up. When I was in fourth grade, we were out on the basketball team playground, and we were going to play basketball. There were seven guys, so they decided we're going to do three-on-three, and it was some fourth-grade guys, some fifth-grade guys, some sixth-grade guys. Of course, if you know playground basketball, you know how it works. The two best guys become captains, right? So they kind of move away, and you got the pool of people over there in the middle, and the captains get to pick. They decide how, who's going to get the first pick, flip a coin or do something. But anyway, they pick the player. So there's two up here, right? And how many did I say were here? There, there's um, an only enough, there's five guys, so there's going to be somebody sitting out, all right? I'm looking around, I'm fourth grade, and Michelle can attest to this, Hare can, can attest to this. In fourth grade, they've seen my pictures. I wasn't looking like a stellar athlete on those days, all right? I wasn't a stellar athlete. I never was, but I definitely was, wasn't in the fourth grade. But one of the captains who was picking teams was a guy named John Thompson. Now, for some reason, I don't know why, John Thompson being a sixth grader, the biggest, most a- athletic guy in our class, he befriended me for no reason other than he liked me, right? He, he liked me, and he, we've developed this secret handshake we had, and he just really, you know, just we hung out together some. And anyway, as he started to pick teams there, I thought, is this going to be picked upon who deserves it, or is John going to pick me because he kind of likes me, right? And to my surprise, his very first pick was, I'll take Woodrum. Woodrum, got you on my team. Did John Thompson pick me because I was worthy because I was such a great player? No, absolutely not. He chose me. I had really nothing, honestly, to offer to him and that team. I did nothing to earn that selection He chose me according to his own will and for his own good reasons. And what did I do when he picked me? What did I do? Of course, I'd be like, yeah, man. And I walked over to the side, high-fived him, or maybe back in those days, we did that that low-five thing, you know. Low-fived him, and and I was on his team for the the game, all right? How awesome is that, right? And, And that's the idea here in Scripture when God calls a person to salvation. When God calls a person for salvation, for his reasons alone, He says, you're on my team. You're on my team. And do we have a responsibility in that? Absolutely we do. We respond, we personally respond to the call that Jesus sends out to us. And so we're talking about a mystery here. Some of you who haven't been around grace or haven't studied the Bible long, maybe this is confusing to you. Let me just tell you, it's a paradox. It's what's called an antinomy, all right? It's something that doesn't seem to fit together, that God is sovereign over salvation but yet we have a responsibility to respond to it. Scripture affirms both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. 
we got a membership class coming up and an intro to grace coming up here in September. I hope you'll go through this. We do a lot of Q&A in the back of our membership book. A lot of these kind of questions that are kind of like, oh, I'm not sure the answer to that. We go through these, and you can ask questions of our elders, of me. It's a really great time. But Scripture affirms divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So God calls, he says, the elect in Scripture. And he calls us, but we have a responsibility to respond to the gospel. Let me just talk to you about some of the words that are used in this calling. He says, he calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're in darkness, he calls us into light. He calls us into fellowship with his son. He calls us into his own kingdom, and he calls us into his glory. And people who are called, who are called by God, they're referred to as belonging to Jesus Christ. We're called to be his servants. And so he says, to those who, he, who are called, he says, beloved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus Christ. So those who are called, he says, are beloved, are loved by God. And they are also kept for Jesus Christ. So to be called automatically makes you kept. To be called automatically makes you kept. Listen as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Listen to this unbreakable chain of salvation. For those whom he predestined, he also, what's the next word? Called. For those whom he called, he also justified. And to those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, called, beloved, kept. Called, beloved, kept. And this idea of kept, this word is very important to Jude. It appears here in verse 1. It appears twice in verse 6. And again in verses 13 and 21. So in this one little chapter, this one little book, five times. And the word means to protect, to keep from harm, to preserve. And it reminds me of what Paul said in Colossians 3.3. He said, for we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Being hidden with Christ in God means our previous history, our old life is over and done. And the new life has begun a Joyful life in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's why Paul could write in, in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He says, this life that I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so he says, I no longer live, so Christ is living within me. So Jude tells us, you're called, you're beloved and I'm keeping you, you're, you're kept, you're secure in me. And so Judah emphasizes this again down in verse 24. Look at verse 24. Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. Let me read that verse one more time. Just look at it on the screen, follow along in your Bible. Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away, and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. So as Jude is writing to this church, and he's talking to them about people who have crept in and are preaching this false doctrine, this false theology. They're spreading these lies. They're teaching these things. And there's people who are just unstable and unsure Jude reassures them that their faith is in Christ. Jesus did the work. They're secure in him. They're kept for him. Jesus obtained our salvation. 
and Jesus maintains our salvation. We need to hear that. Jesus obtained your salvation through the cross, and he maintains your salvation. When somebody responds to God's call in repentance and faith, God responds to that faith by thinking of that person as if their sins are forgiven and by thinking of Jesus' righteousness as absolutely belonging to that person. Get that. We need to understand that. That Jesus, when he looks at you, now that you're in Christ, that you're called, you're beloved, and you're kept, he looks at you and he does not see your sin. He does not see the past that you've committed and the things that you've done. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And as we saw in the girl in the video, sins are forgiven. And as beloved children, we now have the privilege of an intimate relationship with our creator God, whom we can go and call Abba Father. That's my daddy father right there. And so we don't have to live as slavish, slave, like a slave in obedience. We're not a slave to God in the, in the way that we fear and we're worried in our mindset of what a slave is. We serve in joyful obedience because we're heirs to the blessings and the promises that God gives all his beloved children. Think about that. What, what an incredible thing that we don't live by fear. We live as children who can say, Daddy, Father, Abba, Father. What stability, what security, what joy, and what peace that brings into our lives. So Jude has set the tone right from the beginning. He said his readers are in a secure position, all right? He doesn't stop there by just saying, hey, these th- this thing has been added to your life. You know, look what he says. He says this is about multiplication, not just something added to your life, not just addition. Look at verse 2. Very simple verse, but it says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, you've been called, you're beloved by God, God's love is poured out on you, and he's keeping you to the end. You have been given the life of Christ. May mercy, peace, and love just be multiplied, maybe just overflowing in your lives. And why is this important? Why, I mean, why are we talking about this? Why are we spending so much time on this little introduction? Because this is the heart of the truth message that we must take to a confused culture. God loves you, we can say, because of Jesus. Not because of what you bring to the table, not because of anything of you, it's in you. He's called you because of Jesus Christ. And he wants to flood you and your life with mercy, peace, and love. And he will keep you, and he does all this because Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. That's an amazing message, and sadly, we contribute to the confusion our culture gets from the religious circles, churches, because sadly, many people in the church, even churches that are doctrinally try to stay faithful to Scripture, people who sit week in and week out don't understand or even hear are confused about that very simple message of grace. The average person on the street doesn't understand the biblical message of grace, and then we just bring more confusion and fog because we relay a wrong message. We relay a message that says, you got to be good enough. you got to work for it. you got to look this certain way. you got to get these things together in your life, and then maybe God will accept you. And I think, pick on men for a second here. All right, guys? We can stay, say the word God pretty easily, right? God bless America, right? That's a, maybe you got that on your, on your truck. God bless America, right? 
Why do guys, and I've said this before, why do guys struggle with saying the name of Jesus? Why? Because it doesn't feel masculine, right? Jesus. And, and, and so many guys I hear just avoid saying Jesus. Well, you can't give the gospel message, you can't give truth without the name of Jesus, right? You can't give truth without Jesus. Because God, to our culture, God can be anybody. God, you know, he, he's going to bless America, right? He's going to guide is in India, and he's in Afghanistan, and he's in China. You know, like everybody's going up their side of the mountain, right? They're going to end up finding the God, right, that exists. That's a very generic, innocent place. And you stand up at the Oscars, and you say, I'm going to thank God, right? How many people say, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? It doesn't happen too, lot, too much. But even in Christian cultural communities, we communicate to the world, be good, keep the rules, work hard, love your mama, right? That's the kind of things that we relay to this culture, that God and country, right? God and country. And we miss the fact that the gospel message of Jesus Christ is the heart of the truth that we give to people. And without Jesus and the gospel, we have nothing to offer, right? What we give is just morality. It's just giving sinners rules to keep. So we have to give Jesus and him crucified. And in, in America and in our history, we look back and value, Christian values have always been popular. But Jesus Christ and him crucified, not so much through our history, Right? Because it's easy to adapt morality, and, and we see benefits of that in our culture, for sure, when our culture adapts morality. But at the end of the day, what does it get you? It only gets people who try harder and fail more. It doesn't bring joy. It doesn't bring salvation. It doesn't bring Jesus into your life. I like how Al Mohler words this. He says, far too many believers in their churches succumb to the logic of moralism and reduce the gospel to a message of moral improvement. In other words, we communicate to the lost persons the message that what God desires and demands for them is to get their lives straight. And so moralism only produces sinners that are better behaved, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms sinners into adopted sons and daughters of God. And that's the truth the confused culture needs to hear. And so I would encourage you as we start out this series to, to remove a mindset that's for some reason because you attend church and that you've been raised in cultural Christianity that, that your job is to be the morality police. Your job is to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Yes, absolutely exposing sin is part of the gospel mission and it's part of the gospel message we must confront sin because without sin you don't need a gospel right but i think i want to go back to what i was saying about jesus if you're good at getting angry at culture angry at tv and throwing things across the room because you don't like what you're seeing or hearing and most of the time you got this low level of disgust that's about you but you're fearful to ever say the name jesus then you're off track Plain and simple. If you're not saying the name Jesus and talking about Jesus, then you're off track. You're missing the point. So the, the goal of this, before we can bring truth to a confused culture, we have to own and embrace fully the truth of the gospel. And so here it is. Sum it up in our head. You're called, you're loved, and you're kept. 
That's your identity in Jesus Christ. That is your identity. That is who you are. If God called you, then you have been given the Holy Spirit. You're loved by God. You're kept by God. And this should be the thing that means the most to you in your life. It's more important than your family. It's more important than your vacations. It's more important than hunting, fishing, basketball. It's more important than anything else in life. It's the most important thing about you because the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life. He called you into salvation. You're loved by God and you're kept by him for a purpose, to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And so here's the heart question that I truly want you to struggle with and wrestle with. Wouldn't you be happier if you embraced this God-given identity you have in Jesus? Wouldn't you be happy? Wouldn't you be happier? I mean, if you're trying to walk the fence and trying to kind of do both worlds, how much really happiness is that bringing into your life? How much fulfillment is that bringing into your life? Someone once told me that insanity is doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results. And, and, and sadly, I think that many Christians try to do that. And different actions require different thoughts, right? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to truly, in your mind and on paper, weigh the benefits of life with Jesus with an inconsistent walk with him versus a consistent walk with him. All right? Let me, let, me, let me phrase that a little bit different. I want you to really, truly think about your life because I hear so many times, especially from guys, like I'm just not really good at reading my Bible. I'm not really good with spending time in the Word. I'm not really good. I pray, but you know, most of the time we know that that prayer is like from point A to point B and we're distracted looking around, doing a bunch of other things. How is that working for you, that inconsistent relationship with your Creator God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit? How is that working in your life? How is that coming out as far as being an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Is that working for you or not? All right? So to honestly, weigh the benefits of life lived just inconsistently, not consistently spending time with Jesus, not consistently being with Jesus. And then I want you to look at the other option, which is maybe times and periods of your life where you've been very consistent. And in the Word, you're very consistent in prayer. You're really others-focused because of that. And you're, you're looking at these things, and you're really, truly... You're, you're living the way that God wants you to live because you're spending time with him. Not, it's not driven by your efforts. It's driven by your relationship. So I literally want you to, to make two columns, all right? If you're one of these people who you just can't, you just seem to go, like I go two or three days in the Word, and then I go six or seven days without the Word, and then I'm back in it again, and I'm out again. I, I seriously want you to do some thought processes in your head and put it down on paper as your hands and truly, truly write out, how is that working when I'm inconsistent? And how does it work when you're consistent? I can stand here on the authority of God and also experience and tell you that if you want to see victory in your life, if you want to see fulfillment and happiness in your life, if you want to be able to go through difficult seasons in your life and be able to weather the storm with victory and with encouragement, it's because you're being consistent with Christ and his community and you're walking in that faith. And so you've got you, you to literally look at this and begin to process in your own brain, what do I want here, all right? Because only you can decide. My convictions can't change your heart. Only the Holy Spirit working in your heart can change your approach to life. And so what would happen if Grace Church, if everyone in here decided, I'm really going to spend time with Jesus? Every day, I'm going to spend quality time just sitting at his feet, 
and, and just being in prayer with him. Just like Jesus did with his father when he was on earth. Jesus said, I don't do what I want to do. I do what the father tells me. I pull off alone and I get with my father, my dad, and he tells me what I need to do and what I need to say and how I need to act. And that's what we do as Jesus did. And we spend time with God. We allow his identity just to come out of us and it changes everything about the way we see the world and react to the world. And so we're going to be truth ambassadors in this culture. We've got to embrace truth. Otherwise, we're just going to be the moral police who get angry and yell and scream and say, man, my America is being taken away from me. Or we can be people of the gospel who go and with love and compassion and care, calling out sin often when it's necessary, and it is often necessary, but we confront sin, but we do it with the love of Jesus because we realize that sinners do what sinners do, which is sin, and we take the gospel message to them. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for us as a church community and also for individuals here listening, God, that they will truly formulate in their mind just where they're at and what the decisions of their life really say about their priorities. And God, I pray that you will allow them to truly begin the habit of seeking you on a regular, daily, consistent basis. And God, may church be more than just cultural Christianity of showing up and being here, but God, it'll truly be an intimate relationship with you, Jesus, where we know you, and then it just, it just comes off our tongue so easy that, because Jesus, you're our everything, and you're our life. And God, I pray, especially for the guys in here, God, I pray that you will help them to see that this is where life is found. You are the resurrection and the life. You are the truth. And God, I pray that we will build our lives on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.